0: All right, Ephesians chapter 3. Um, if, you're, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in the letter to the church at Ephesus, which is a letter to all of the surrounding churches at Ephesus. And um, we're just going to pick up right where we left off in chapter 3. But to kind of get us going, as I was studying this and, and thinking about this, my mind went back to one of my favorite movies of all time, which just so happens to be Jurassic Park. Anybody seen? remember the old Jurassic Park? Well, full disclosure, I grew up in a home that was like pretty strict, pretty rigid, uh, especially when it came to cussing. And so uh, it, I was not allowed to watch TV shows or movies that had more than three cuss words in it. So if it was like three cuss words, the movie was off. And there'd be like the second cuss word, like, please don't swear again. Please don't swear again. Please don't swear again. And that third swear would come out like three strikes, you're out. And, and no joke, the movie, the show would be turned off. And um, and I, I, I don't hold this against my parents at all. I know their intentions were great. It actually had the opposite effect on us though. My twin brother and I would lock ourselves in our room and we would compete to see who could swear the most in a sentence in a logical form, you know, in a way that made sense. Um, so it actually had the opposite effect on us. We wanted to, it just made us want to swear more. Um, that's what the law does. Um, but we would rent a movie every single Friday night. And that was awesome. Movie night's phenomenal, but there aren't that many movies that you can watch with less than three cuss words. So it kind of got to the point where every Friday night we were renting like musicals from the thirties and forties. They're in black and white. I'm not exaggerating. I've probably seen every Judy Garland movie and Shirley Temple movie ever made. And if you don't know who they are, you have not lived. Okay. Um, they're, They're phenomenal. Think Wizard of Oz. Okay. Um, so we were not huge fans of this rule because our options were very limited, and it's probably why I'm so weird today. Um, but one day, my friend Jonathan Wilder somehow got his hands on a bootlegged copy of Jurassic Park. Uh, I don't. This is back in the day when you could stick a, a what do they call those things? Videotapes. Yeah. You could stick a videotape into your VCR. I seriously just blanked on that. Uh, Into your VCR, and when there was a a movie or a TV show on, you could hit record, and you could record whatever was on the TV onto your VHS. And so he had done that with Jurassic Park, which means since it was on TV, it was edited. And he brought that over to our house on our Friday night, and we're like Judy Garland, 1930s, 1940s, it's movie night, and he's like, hey, do you guys want to watch Jurassic Park? And we were like... No, there's like 27 cuss words in it. We know that because we looked it up on the website because we always looked it up on a website first. And he's like, no, it's edited. And so because of that, this is like, you know, I don't remember, 10, 11-year-old Ben Davey with my twin brother, Seth. This movie is like in my head and it stands out, and it's one of my favorites of all time, and, and one of my favorite and most profound scenes that I was thinking through as I was even uh, reading Paul and his prayer, which we're going to get to in a minute, it's not the T-Rex ripping the guy off the toilet. Um, it's not the velociraptors and that intense, like, hunting scene. Uh, it's none of that. It's, it's actually the, almost at the very beginning of the movie when they're riding in their Jeep, and, and uh, Dr. Hammond is kind of showing them the park, and then all of a sudden, for the first time ever, this dino expert, uh, the doctor, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Alan, Alan, Alan Grant, for the first time ever, sees this living, breathing, massive, long neck. Brontosaurus, whatever you call it. He's this world-class paleontologist, if you remember the movie, He's dedicated his entire life to studying and researching and digging up dinosaurs. And now for the first time, he sees one in real life. And he, he jumps out of the Jeep and he's like looking at this thing, eating leaves off of a tree. And, and he's just blown away by it. He's talking about, that's a dinosaur. That's a dinosaur. And then he just starts staggering and, and stumbling under the weight of this excitement and emotion to the point where he can't handle it anymore. And he just falls to his knees. The, the dude in the truck is like, we're going to make a lot of money out of this. Jeff Goldblum is thinking about how he's going to win the lady scientist over. And, but, but Alan is so blown away, all he can do is crumble to his knees at the weight of what he's just experienced. This is really what I feel like the Apostle Paul is doing in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He's just invited us to ride along with him in his Jeep. He's buckled us in and he has pulled back this curtain of the mystery of God that, that culminates in the church, which we saw last week. If you weren't here last week, we saw in Ephesians 3, 9 through 13 or 10 through 13, um, that the highest manifestation of the glory of God in the world or the greatest demonstration of his handiwork in the world is not dinosaurs it's it's not canyons it's not waterfalls or alps it is this gathering of redeemed people called the church this gathering of reconciled forgiven Unified people in spite of all of our differences and all of our past and all of our backgrounds under Christ our head. This is the most incredible and awe-inspiring organism in the entire world. And and what we see here, what we're going to see today is like Dr. Alan Grant in Jurassic Park, who had come face to face with this transcendent glory for the first time. All Paul can do after sharing this revelation is fall to his knees in astonishment. And just crumble under the weight of it. Look with me at his response starting in verse 14. For this reason, I fall to my knees before the Father. And again, just imagine him like you're just crumbling under the weight of what he's just shared, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, through his spirit in your inner being Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to see here, but first is this fact, again, that Paul is falling to his knees in prayer. Because the fact that Paul falls to his knees to pray, it it means something. Because the normal posture for prayer for, for Jews is not kneeling. It's not dropping to your knees. In fact, the normal posture is to stand. You can see this if you were to go to Israel And you were to go to the wailing wall today and and Jews are praying in front of the wailing wall. They're standing and they're swaying back and forth as they pray. That is the normal posture of prayer for, for Jews. Kneeling meant that something significant was going on. It meant something extraordinary was happening or there was an extra measure of zeal or emotion or passion behind the prayer there are other examples of this in scripture for for example when king solomon was praying at the dedication of the temple he got on his knees on a wooden platform and lifted his hands to heaven that was a special prayer in gethsemane what did jesus do he fell to his knees in agony and anxiety because the moment in front of him was so extraordinary He begged God three times, take this cup, please take it, please, passionately with with sweat that was blood. God, please, I'm begging you if there's any other way, do it. And then in Acts 20 is another example. The Apostle Paul is actually leaving the church at Ephesus, and and, and he loves these elders. Timothy's one of them, and and he's weeping, and it's a tearful goodbye. And they don't just pray standing up in a huddle. They drop to their knees in emotion and pray as they're saying their goodbye. So the fact that Paul says he's bowing his knees is really important here because it shows us that there is a heightened level of significance and emotion and urgency and passion. When we think of Jesus praying in the garden, obviously that's even, even more heightened, but that's a similar picture that we need to have as we look at this prayer together. And we know exactly what was going on. We know exactly why he was on his knees. He says it. Look back at, at your text. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees. So in case you're wondering why he's all been out of shape, why he's so passionate, what the moment is, he says, for this reason, I'm falling to my knees. What I'm praying for is so weighty because it's everything I just told you about. It's all of that that I just told you about the blessing of the people of God and that you are recipients of his grace and that you have all of this now in Christ and you have this calling as his people, as the highest manifestation of his glory in the world. Because of all of that, now I'm falling on my knees. I think it's really interesting because instead of saying all of this really awesome stuff, And then just like moving on as if we can live in it. It's like he shares it and immediately grasps the fact that it's too great for us. And that we need help. It's too great. And there are three main requests that Paul is getting after here. Requests that aren't just for the church at Ephesus, but they're for us as well. It's for the church. And I want to look at these three requests with you today. And the first one is that we would be made strong. Look at verse 16 with me. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened or made strong enough with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So again, that phrase, be strengthened, literally means be made strong enough. Why would Paul pray that we would be made strong enough? What do we need to be strong enough for? Well, verse 17 tells us strong enough so that Christ can dwell in our hearts. Our hearts aren't strong enough naturally to hold and possess Christ. Guys, our hearts are weak. Daniel just read a passage that explains it well. They're deceptive. They're, they're fragile. They're prone to wander, often distracted, experts at chasing after other gods, and yet God wants to do so much and dispense so much in them. He literally wants to make our hearts his dwelling place. I want you to use your imaginations with me for a minute. Imagine that you're, you're walking in uptown after church today. You're, you're trying to find a place to eat, And you're just, you know, walking on the sidewalk and all of a sudden this ominous dark cloud starts hovering over the city. And everyone's kind of looking up at it like, oh no, it's about to rain. And it does start to rain, but instead of rain like water, millions and billions and trillions of gold coins just start falling from the sky. And just imagine for the sake of your dream, because this is not a nightmare. This is a dream. These coins don't knock you out, okay? And, and they're falling to the ground, and everyone just starts freaking out and scurrying around like, free money, it's gold, and, and you're trying to grab as much as you can. But in your dream, because dreams are weird like this, the only thing you have to grab these gold coins with is a brown paper bag. And so you're like, you got your little brown paper bag that, you know, is supposed to hold sandwiches and you're trying to catch these gold coins. But what happens as soon as the gold coin hits that brown paper bag, it just falls right through it because the bag is not strong enough to hold it. You can't capture it. It's actually the worst dream possible because treasure is raining from heaven and there's nothing that you can do about it. You don't have the capacity to hold on to it. One author described us like this. He said, paper bags are not fit containers for valuables. Guys, what you and I need to understand is that our hearts are just like that. Our hearts are brown paper bags. Think about how true this is. Not only for us as individuals, but for us as a collection of individuals in this family. Like, as your pastor, and I'm sure some of you were thinking this as well, as I was preaching this last week, we are the highest manifestation of God's glory in the world. But I know my heart, and I know our, our body, right? And, and I don't know if you were thinking this, but I was thinking, what about all the hypocrites, like including me? What about all of our sin? Like we are so weak and, and broken. We, we struggle to get along. And when we've been at church for five months now. Not going to lie, we've had some drama, Right? We've had some hurt, some hurt feelings, some people unhappy. We struggle to love each other. We struggle to care for each other. We we struggle to serve each other. Oftentimes we miss the mark. How in the world is God going to do all of that amazing stuff in us? You ever wonder that? How in the world are we supposed to possess Christ in our hearts and grow into a body that actually looks like him, which we saw last week is is the purpose of the church. It's the purpose of unity, that we would grow up into maturity and look like Jesus. How in the world is, you're not strong enough to hold the immensity of his beauty. My heart is not large enough to hold the vastness of his character. We are nothing but brown paper bags in comparison to the weight of his glory. And so we don't have the capacity to hold him. Paul just shared this awesome truth. And as soon as he shares this truth, he falls to his knees because he immediately knows we don't have the ability to do this. We need to be made strong enough to hold it. And this is the opposite of what our culture is constantly telling us, right? Telling us that we're, we're strong and, and, and we're powerful and, and we're mighty. We're so strong that, that we can place God to the side and elevate ourselves to his position of, of authority and sovereignty and even deity. So the old philosopher said, God is dead and we have killed him. And so now we must make ourselves gods in his place. Sounds so great autonomy, freedom. I don't have to obey the Bible anymore. Sweet. We naturally think this of ourselves ever since that serpent tricked Adam and Eve in the garden and said, did God really say that? You know what? The only reason that God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because you would actually be like him. You could be like God. And ever since then, we've been after that. We've been chasing that dream. I want to be like God. I want to be the ruler of my own life. I'm strong enough. So while it might be easy for us to get puffed up by the idea that we are the highest manifestation of God's glory in the world, and it might even be natural for us to turn our noses up I mean, as, as, as sinful people who still struggle with pride, yeah, we're the, we're the manifestation of God's glory and we turn our noses up at everyone who's on the outside. That, that's natural to think of ourselves in arrogant and haughty ways. Guys, Paul does the complete opposite. And that's really where we need to find ourselves. So blown away by all that God has done and promised to do That it drives us to our knees in need of something supernatural. Listen to this. In order for us to possess the treasure of Christ in our hearts, we need the power of Christ to transform them and strengthen them. It's all of Christ. So he gives us his spirit. And with his spirit, he gives us power and strength. He makes us strong enough to hold him. He takes these brown paper bags and he makes them gold. They can catch gold. And we're able to hold this treasure. We're able to be his dwelling place in the midst of our sin. And, and he's constantly changing and shaping and refashioning. But more importantly, blessing us with himself. He's here now. Outwardly, we're still frail and we're, we're fragile, but inwardly, we have the very Spirit of God strengthening us more and more with each day. I love how one author put it. We are frail containers pulsating with divine power. That's Paul's first prayer, and praise God it's answered for us today. His second prayer is that we would be rooted in love. And this is really the thrust of the entire prayer. Flows out of the first one, leads into the second one. Look again at verse 17 in the last half of it. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible about the love of God. And I think it's one of my favorites because you could take just about every other scripture about the love of God and it would kind of be encompassed in those four adjectives height, breadth, length, depth. His love is so wide that there is not a single person who can fall outside of its scope. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that's wide, that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. His love is for the whole world, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what you've done. No matter what skeletons you have in your closet, no matter what baggage you walked in with, no matter how much blood you have on your hands, you do not fall outside of the scope of God's love. It is for everyone without exception. Male, female, rich, poor, old, young, religious, and rebellious. God's love is wide enough to welcome everyone without exception. Number two, it's not only wide but it's long, so long that it has no end. You can't grab the beginning of it because it existed in eternity past. The father was loving his son and, and through his spirit, he was like, I wanna invite more sons into this family and you can't see the end of it either because it goes on for all eternity. That's how long it is. It has no expiration date. It's not like the milk in your fridge or or the bread in your your pantry, you know, used by this date. Anybody ever gone on vacation and forgotten about the loaf of bread or the gallon of milk? And you come back after, you know, five or six days or something, and it's, it's sour and it's moldy and, and disgusting. And you're like, oh, man, that was my fault. Some of you have forgotten about God for a little while, right? Maybe you had days this past week where you ran after everything but him. You chased after all kinds of other idols, lesser glory, lesser beauty, maybe even sin. You turned your heart away from him more times than you can count. And and maybe you're a little nervous that if you go back to him, his love's going to be gone. What if he doesn't love you anymore? What if what was once so fresh and sweet has turned sour and bitter because you forgot about it? Anyone ever felt like that? If that's you today, you need to hear and understand this word. God's love for you is so long, it will never end. It will never expire, and it doesn't hinge on you. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, God's love is so long that your old age cannot wear it out, so long that your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it, so long that your successive temptations will not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it has no bounds that's good news. This is what makes the love of God so amazing and at the same time so impossible for our human minds to fathom and comprehend because it's unlike any other love we have ever experienced or ever dreamed of experiencing. Because every other love that we experience in this life will come to an end. Whether it's the passionate romance of lovers or a mother's love for a child or the love shared between friends, guys, it doesn't last. If not because of our own mistakes and and failure and, and sin, because of death and the grave, it will be interrupted. And all of you know this to be true. See, because of Christ's death on the cross, though, no amount of mistakes or failures or sins can ever interrupt his love for you. It will never scare him off because his blood has covered all of those things. Let me say that again. His blood has covered all of those things. You have been forgiven. You have been redeemed and raised up, set at the right hand of the Father in glory even now. That's the truest thing about you. And when God sees you, that's what he sees. You are forgiven. So there is no sin that you or I could commit that would make him stop loving us. And that's good news because every single one of us sinned a thousand times this last week. So I've got to ask you today, guys, do you grasp the length of the love of God for you? Do you grasp that because of the cross, your sin cannot interrupt it? And because of his resurrection from the dead, now the grave can't interrupt it either. It never ends for all eternity will rest in it. Romans 8:38 is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Look at it with me. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's so wide that no one can fall outside of its reach, and it's so long that it will never come to an end. Third, not only that, it's so high that it ushers us into the heights of glory, which we saw earlier on in chapter 2. It's so deep that you could dive into it for all eternity and never find its end. Never reach the bottom of it. So as the old hymn writer once penned, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned us from sin. Could we, I love this, could we with ink the ocean fill And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints an angel's song. And the Apostle Paul says, this love is so amazing and so immense, it surpasses all knowledge. Yet for those who have been redeemed by Christ and filled with his spirit, now we know it. You guys see the irony there? The the contrast there, it should really blow our minds. His love is incomprehensible, but since he's given us his spirit, we can comprehend it. And experience it firsthand. But what you and I need to see here in this prayer is that Paul wasn't just begging God that we would know his love. He was begging God that our lives would be rooted and grounded in it. Rooted and grounded are are two different metaphors. One's agricultural. One's architectural. But they mean the same thing. So, like trees... Paul is praying that our lives would dig or send our roots down deep into God's love. And like buildings, our lives would be built upon this solid foundation of his love as well. And this is so important for us to get, guys, because whatever it is that we send our roots into, that's what the rest of our lives are going to look like. Whatever we build our building on, that's what the rest of the building is going to look like. Every single aspect of our lives, including the fruit they produce, all hinges on whatever the source of our life is. And so if you want to live out your calling as a member of God's family, if you want to represent Jesus well, as salt and light in the world, and you want to bear the fruit of his spirit, you absolutely have to make sure you're digging your roots into his love. I love how Dr. Barnhouse once put it in talking about the fruit of the spirit, it said, love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Self-control is love holding the reins. There can be no spiritual fruit apart from love. It is the key to all fruit. And so if our roots are grounded in anything but it, we will not look like Christ. We won't live out that calling that, he just talked about, we're going to look like something else. And now at this point, I really want to clarify what I mean by the love of God, because it's easy to get it twisted in our thinking. There are two distortions uh, or two rival visions of the love of God that have kind of made their way into the church that are actually anti-love. Love. They're the opposite of love, and yet they've permeated our churches so much that it's, it's why I think a lot of our churches don't actually look like Christ, and why most of us don't look like little Christ as well. The first distortion is a legalistic vision of love. This vision essentially says, God is love, and, and he is loving, and he has all kinds of love that he wants to pour out on our lives, but the only way you can access that love is if you follow his commands. So if you want to feel the love of God, if you want his favor on your life, you've got to obey this, 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 this. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to go to church, give your money, don't swear, don't have sex outside of marriage, smoke, drink, do drugs, kill anyone or steal or whatever. Like You've got to follow the law to the letter, and then, then God will pour out his love on you. That's legalism. If I obey, then God Will love me. I've shared with you before about my trip to Bob Jones University, which is like one of the epicenters of this a distorted vision of love. And while I was there for a week, i uh, just gotten saved and uh, still really struggling with a lot of different things. And I'll never forget the preacher uh, at chapel saying, if, if you have spiked hair, if you don't go back to your, your dorm room and you don't comb that hair over, uh, you are not a Christian and you are going to hell. If you listen to rock and roll music, sorry, hell for you. And then we're all just sitting there like, what? (laughs) And and while that's easy to mock, and that's easy for me to get angry at, because I was was very angry, I'm still angry when I think about it, billions of people around the world operate with this vision of God's love. It might not be crazy stuff like rock and roll and spiked hair, because that's weird, but This is essentially what every single world religion teaches. If you obey Torah, if you obey the Quran, if you follow the Book of Mormon, if you give money to the poor, if you make your pilgrimage, if you show kindness to your your neighbor or whatever, if you clean up your act, then you'll be accepted and God will love you. But that's not the Bible's vision of love. That's a distortion. That is not the gospel. The gospel says that God's love was demonstrated to us when? While we were sinners. God's love was demonstrated to us while we were enemies. Romans 5, 7 through 10 says this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, God didn't wait until we started obeying him or started cleaning up our act to love us and die for us, he initiated it. He set his love on us first while we were his enemies. And then everything else came afterward. His love preceded our obedience. And so this is a distortion. The distortion that my family is growing out of, even to this day. The second distortion is the antinomian vision of love or the anti-law vision of love. And it's the total opposite. It basically says God is love. God loves love. He just loves love, right? And, and he doesn't judge anyone or anything. And he doesn't condemn anyone. He doesn't hate anything. He doesn't oppose anything. He doesn't expect or demand or command anything. God is just love. In other words, his love is free. And so it doesn't require anything of us whatsoever. But again, this is not the Bible's vision of love. You see, this is so important. People say theology doesn't matter, I just want God. It's an oxymoron, because theology is the study of God. So you don't get God, it doesn't make any sense. But anyways, that's a soapbox. We won't get into that. Um, God's love is connected to and in harmony with every single one of his attributes. You don't just get love over here and then like, Holiness and righteousness and justice and and mercy and grace and sovereignty and power over here. Like it's not like he's mainly love with a couple side attributes. God is all of his attributes perfectly all the time. And they all work in harmony with each other. That's theology, by the way that's like that's the study of God okay so theology is important so his love does not operate in isolation with his holiness his righteousness and his justice and his mercy and his power and his sovereignty like they go hand in hand so the fact that God is loving and holy means that he is opposed to everything that opposes holiness The fact that he is loving and righteous means that he actually hates wickedness. The fact that he's truthful means that he hates lies, lying. He opposes liars. The fact that he is loving and just means that he will fight against those who are unjust that he will judge the wicked. I love my son. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love you guys. And because I love something, I naturally oppose anyone or anything that oppose you, that oppose my bride. That's what love does, right? Right? This is what's so important for us to grasp. A genuine experience of the love of God will always manifest itself in loving what he loves. If you experience the love of God, the outworking of that is that you will start loving what he loves. So we who once loved darkness now love light. We who once loved sin and still wrestle with that in our flesh now love righteousness. We who once loved all kinds of other gods and chased after all kinds of other satisfaction now love him above all else. Paul stated this explicitly in chapter 2. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. And we're saved because of his great love for us so that... We become his masterpiece, ready and prepared for good works in the world. That's the gospel. Guys, our good works are not the pathway to love, which is what legalism says. They are the proof of love. And if you don't have the proof, you haven't experienced the love. The Apostle John says this explicitly in 1 John chapter 4. He who says he loves God and yet hates his neighbor does not love God. And we could go down the list. That's the gospel. So guys, listen. If we dig our roots into legalism and that distorted vision of love, we'll either become proud because we feel like we've checked off the list and we've earned his favor and his love, or we'll become depressed and totally disenchanted and discouraged because we know we can never check the list and we know we can never earn it. So you either got pride or depression if you're digging into that system right there. Not a good idea. And on the other hand, if we dig our roots into antinomianism or anti-law, we run the risk of living the kinds of lives that God is totally opposed to while at the same time thinking in some sentimental way that we're resting in his love. And we've deceived ourselves. But if we dig our roots deep into the gospel, not only will we find the rest and peace and hope and joy that our souls are longing for, but our lives will be transformed in such a powerful way that when the world looks at us, they will see Christ. People who look like him and who manifest his glory as salt and light in the world as a compelling witness to the fact that something happened in us and changed us. We'll become more humble and we will become more holy. Not in this arrogant, I'm holier than thou type of way, but in a Jesus was holy and he said, be holy because I'm holy, that kind of way. We'll be more righteous and just and truthful and kind and loving and joyful And all of those things, why? Because his fullness will dwell in us. And that leads us to the third and final prayer request that we would be filled with God. Verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, verse seventeen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In verse nineteen, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is such a staggering prayer, and I, I don't know what your prayers look like. I know what mine look like. I don't know what you ask God for on a daily basis, but I could tell you one thing: none of them are bigger than this. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would dwell in us—that is staggering and astounding. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> and how does that happen? One of the greatest illustrations I, I've heard that explains this is out of an ocean. Now, I'm not a beach guy. I'm super white. I'm super bald. All of this doesn't really do well in the sun, okay? Um, I've gotten to the point where I just wear a t-shirt and a huge straw hat whenever I go outside uh, on the beach. Just because it's it's too much of a hassle to put sunscreen on, and when I became a dad, I kind of signed this this agreement that I was forfeiting all rights to be cool. And it's just like it's par for the course. Dads are supposed to be weird, and so I wear my T-shirt and my my hat out there, and it's it's awesome. Uh, but as much as I don't like the sun, and I'm not a huge fan of the beach, whenever I do finally get out there in all of the dad swag, I just stand and I, and I look out over the horizon. I look out over over that Atlantic Ocean, and I can squint my eyes and I can look as far as I possibly can, but I can't see its fullness. It is so immense and vast. Now, my kids have some buckets and they've got shovels and we like to build sandcastles with them. And so I could take one of Nicholas's and Olivia's buckets and I could, I could bend over um, where the waves are crashing and I could let the wave crash, and I could let the water spill into my bucket, and I could hold that bucket up, and my bucket would be full of the ocean, right? With all of its components, not lacking anything. But at the same time, the fullness of the ocean is not contained in my little bucket. My bucket is full of the ocean, but there's still a lot more ocean out there. And I could, I could keep it down there for eternity and let that ocean just spill in and spill in and spill in and I still won't capture all of it. Colossians 2, 9-10 explains how this plays out with the fullness of God. It says, for in him who is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. In other words, because Christ is infinite, imagine a bucket the size of the ocean. He could take on all the fullness of deity. But since we're finite and our bucket is much smaller, we can only take in a little bit. But what we have fills us with the divine. So that there is no crevice left in our heart that is not indwelt by our triune God. That's mind-blowing. We instantly become full of his fullness. He dwells in us. Guys, the Christian life is supposed to be an endless progression into the fullness of God. That's what this is. Constantly, day by day, through the power of the holy spirit as we dig our roots deep into the love of god revealed to us in christ we become more and more integrated into his fullness that's what paul was on his knees about passionately desperately urgently begging god to do in you and me how often though do we choose to pull the bucket up like when it's halfway like, I got a little bit of God in there. I got a little bit of that, that fullness of deity. I'm going to pull it up, and I'm going, to, I'm going to leave some room in my heart. So it's like a third God and like a third you and, and a third the world or some variation of that. Maybe it's like three-fourths of the world and, and a fourth God, and we exist on tanks that are half full. Guys, the Christian life was never meant to be a half-hearted endeavor where we have half of God and half of ourselves or a third of God, us, world. It was never meant to be that. We were meant to possess and be possessed by God with all of his power and all of his joy and all of his glory and all of his hope and all of his victory. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to experience and enjoy life in Jesus. To be full of him. To not pull up halfway and settle. He wants to make our hearts his home. What a powerful truth that is, guys. And this this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. Because I, I regularly do that. I mean, every single day we're making a choice with our buckets, the buckets of our hearts and our lives. Like, Are we going to experience the fullness of God today, or are we going to chase after lesser things? Are we going to experience the victory of God today, or are we going to go back to the pigsty of our sin? Are we going to experience the hope and the joy and the peace of God today, or are we going to go back to our worry and our anxiety and our depression We make these choices every single day and and I make this choice every single day and my prayer for every single one of us is the same prayer that Paul is praying on his knees begging God that we wouldn't settle for half full. That we would experience the fullness of God. We dig our roots deep into him and build our lives completely on his love. Paul concludes this prayer with kind of a purpose. Why? So that he'll be glorified. So that he'll receive glory. Let me close with this. We're gonna look at it in more, more detail next week. But he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I mean, there's expectation in this prayer. There's expectation that when I fall on my knees and I cry out to God, he hears me and he answers me. And when I ask him to make my brown paper bag capable of holding him, he answers it. He says yes to him who is able to do more than I could ever ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen.